0: Hello, I'm Amber Athey, The Spectator's Washington Editor, and I'm here to encourage you to subscribe to The Spectator's American Edition. If you visit spectator.us forward slash subscribe, you can get our print and digital edition for just $7.99 a month. This means you get unlimited access to our amazing website and we'll send you a beautiful 80-page monthly magazine. You'll also have access to our mobile app. Subscribe now at spectator.us forward slash subscribe. You won't regret it.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and now the Joe Biden presidency. We will be looking at how a 78-year-old president will change America, and we'll be asking if normalcy which is what he promised to bring, has returned to American politics. The answer, of course, is no. I'm joined today by Josh Glancy, who is special correspondent for The Sunday Times. And we're going to be asking what's wrong with the American media. Um, Josh, you wrote a beautiful diary in this month's edition of The Spectator World, in which you describe your disillusionment i think it's fair to say with the american media you you came to america as a journalist with starry eyes i think about about what the american media is like and you're i think fair to say quite disappointed in in what you saw
0: yeah i i think maybe americans don't always realize if you're a, a aspiring journalist growing up in britain aspiring intellectual or you know, literature or whatever, the the American media is something you obsess over. I mean, for me growing up, I would read the New York review of books and I felt like it was my, you know, golden ticket to the great world of New York intellectual life that I always wanted to be a part of. And I would watch CNN when I was abroad and, and on holiday and just think, wow, this is the, just the the money, the power that it also felt so consequential. And you know, I, when I got to America, it was amazing. You know, I sort of was reading the New York Times every day. It was delivered to my doorstep. It felt like a great privilege. And over that last three or four years, I, I think disillusionment is putting it mildly. I have just become sort of really went from love to something <laughs> closer to hate, I think, by the end.
1: Yes. Well, you single out certain people. I mean, and do you think these journalists have become worse? That sort of maybe the Trump era broke their brains in some way? Or do you think that actually you were just, your opinion of it was too high originally?
0: Yeah, so I think it's definitely both, right? I mean, a- any time in life you come into contact with things that you've idealised, it's always disappointing. People are always infinitely less glamorous up close. If you ever meet a, a Hollywood film star, that's always true. Yeah. But I do think America's, I do think Trump broke something. I think there are obviously longer term trends. There's the, the kind of corrosion of, the economics of the industry, the the growth of competition, you know, it became part of an attention economy where you're competing with YouTube and TikTok and whatever. And so they just keep ratcheting up the temperature to levels that just seem absurd. But I do think a lot of it was Trump. I think it it gave reign to this kind of absurdity, this kind of carnival of loathing and disdain that just, uh, you know, it drove ratings, clearly. And that was... A lot of what was behind it and but it was also just like this personal animus that you know obviously Trump could be an incredibly obnoxious figure but it was just it was just totally inappropriate I mean it was just everyone really I mean that you know it's it's a cliche now but like Trump derangement syndrome but I think we sort of forget now that things are a little calmer how bonkers it was you know I remember that time when Anderson Cooper on CNN I mean Anderson Cooper growing up you know he was the guy who presented New Year's Eve at Times Square he's like a kind of you know, a sort of Jeremy Paxman figure, and you had him on CNN talking about how Trump resembled a sort of what was it like a dying fat sea turtle on his back on the <laughs> yeah. beach or something, and just like what has happened to these once kind of great figures, it's extraordinary. As a, as a Brit, I always used to think that the
1: problem with American journalism was that it was too pofaced, too serious, um, and much more much more thorough and perhaps uh, less sensational, but but a bit too civic minded and high and mighty, whereas British journalism Bromwell, is, is the opposite in that it was mm. too close to the tabloid gutter quite often. I always thought sort of the best thing would be a medium between the two. But the Trump era did not give us that it gave us sort of uh, high minded gutter
0: stuff, right? That's exactly it. You know, you're definitely right. I mean, and it's still very much the case that the fact checking standards at places like The Washington Post and New Yorker, for the most part, unless. With some exceptions, remain extremely high, mm. uh, much higher than you or I have to deal with in UK print media, and that's still true. Naturally, our but facts yeah. are
1: always right, though. So we don't need to. We don't need to worry <laughs> yeah, about but, that.
0: Yeah, but you're right. What happened with the Trump era was that it was that po face sense of mission mixed with uh, a sense that they didn't have to stick to any of their po face rules because it was Trump and because it was exceptional, dangerous circumstances, and and the result was just this kind of you know, it was the mission on steroids, wasn't it? I mean, they they, they took this enemies of the people thing genuinely to heart. Yes. Well, the New York York
1: Times editorial board, I mean, said repeatedly, you know, the the purpose of journalism has changed in this era because Mm. of what's happened to the presidency. And then but then what's strange is this is this reset. Now we go into the Biden era, and you'd have thought perhaps there would be some proper criticism of a Democratic president in the even Democratic-leaning media. But there, there doesn't seem to be a lot, as far as I can see.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think some of it is is the hangover from Trump, in a sense. There's a sense that Biden is this fragile creature that needs protecting. You know, the victory was so narrow, then you had Jan 6th. There was this sense that the republic is hanging by a thread. And, you know, we don't want to be too rough with him because who knows what will happen. We don't want to snap that thread. I think that's a part of it. I think people are still very traumatized by the Trump era. But I also I guess it's it's a reflection of this just extreme polarization where it's just not in. And there has been plenty of reporting that has been quite critical of certain aspects of the Biden presidency. I think The New York Times did some decent stuff on on the border, or well, we can't call it a crisis, can we? The border imbroglio—should we call it an imbroglio? Well, I, let's talk about that because, I mean, obviously, when I start talking about that, people, you know,
1: I might start sounding like a sort of right-wing bore going on about the the border crisis. But th- that's very odd, is it not? That that the Trump administration's border policy was the cause of such immense rage and apoplexy. And then the Biden administration finds itself having to do the same thing because there is a, a crisis at the border. And it's sort of played down and almost uh, censored. And, and indeed, the word crisis is Politico has said you're not supposed to use it.
0: Yeah. I, I wouldn't draw a direct equivalence between the child separation policy and the sort of de facto child separation policy that kind of happened, yeah. because I do think the latter was well intentioned, but intentions don't always get you good results. And I mean, it was covered. Obviously, the, t- the difference is the tone, really. It's not that the papers, the serious papers, aren't doing the reporting. It's just that they're, they're now reporting it in quite a sort of matter-of-fact way. Here's the story, you know, I guess more traditional journalism. Here's the story and make of it what you will, rather than, like, this is the end of the republic and America as we know it and, you know, anyone who's looking away is, is complicit, which was the tone of a lot of the Trump era, for, you know, in a lot of outlets. Well, and there's also the
1: the particularly the Washington Post seems to news reporting seems to have become a bit like. Do you ever read the Global Times? You know, it reads a bit like that. It's like a sort of official press release from the government about what it's doing. There was there was a piece about um, the Biden administration moved to ban menthol cigarettes recently because mm. African Americans disproportionately apparently smoke menthol cigarettes and it affects them worse. And it was sort of weird it read like a weird press release by the government. And I don't think this is very healthy for democracy, particularly from a newspaper that's slogan is democracy dies in darkness.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think th- these, are, these newspapers are vast operations and within them are a lot of solid good reporters who aren't doing this kind of narrative journalism, uh, aren't doing this kind of cheerleading for the administration. Yeah. But it's definitely true that you're getting a lot of pieces that are just... You know, you're back to this kind of thing where, yeah, they'll just say what the administration is doing totally uncritically, whereas they couldn't write about the Trump administration without taking an angle. But what's interesting, what I found by the end of my time in America, I found that I wasn't able to form concrete judgments on stories without actually reporting them myself. I found, so for example, with the Georgia voting law, hullabaloo, I was reading the coverage, I was reading it in the you know, New York Times, reading Washington Post, then reading a bit of National Review or the Conservative or Spectator USA even to, you know, get two sides of it. But I couldn't actually find someone who would just give me like a straight, honest news report. And that was what I found increasingly towards the end in America was that unless I was actually reporting a story, so talking to people myself, going somewhere, actually fleshing out the details myself. I wasn't really able to form a judgment on it because I just felt like I was getting fed narratives from different sides and not any reality. And, you know, I think the truth is the conservative press in, in America has struggled with straight reporting for a long time. I would, I would exclude The Wall Street Journal from that. It has a very good newsroom. But generally speaking, there isn't a lot of conservative reporting. I think the problem now is that the liberal mainstream media, which is probably larger and more powerful, has, has kind of a lot of them have joined them in that. I certainly think when you look at Rachel Maddow during the uh, on MSNBC during the Trump era, I think she was equivalent to Sean Hannity most of the time. When you look at some of her RussiaGate stuff, it was yes, it was unhinged. I mean, and it 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 was every night. It was unhinged for
1: about at least a year and a half on on, on RussiaGate. But it seemed well, to she, there she, seemed she, to have an audience.
0: I mean, it worked. Well, she it worked for the ratings, but but it didn't work for an American democracy. She was the reason that was. We talked about when I came to America with this kind of starry-eyed vision of of U.S. media. Mm. I remember about a couple of months into the Trump presidency, she got hold of one page of the Trump tax returns. And they hyped this like it was the new Watergate. I mean, it really was. All day they were blaring adverts. I remember sitting down with a friend that evening and we got takeaway. We were like, let's sit and watch. You know, this is going to be the moment when the Trump, the walls are closing in and we watched it, and it was risible. I mean, it was hilarious. And I suddenly, something started to click inside me, like, there's something a bit wrong here. Uh, and that was a harbinger of, of what came next, really.
1: And do you think, coming back to Britain, do you think Britain, British media is in danger of, of slipping into these,
0: the same habits? I I don't. I do, I, I do think, I mean, you, you know, you'll have observed and written about this. It is, It is, I just arrived back in the UK after five years in America, and it's very noticeable to me how much of the language and temperament of American progressivism has become a part of British discourse. Yeah. You know, you, sw- you switch on the Oscars coverage, and it's, you know, that thing where it's like, this is the first, you know, Chinese American immigrant to ever, you know, be nominated for Best Actor, which is, you know, nice. And these things are worth noting, but it's like, that's the prism through which yes. the Oscars was being reported on Sky. That was new to me. I don't think that would have been the case. As extensively five years ago in the u k certainly on the left it's we are downstream from America in that sense, aren 't we, because you
1: know with with the Black Lives Matter protests and stuff, you had protesters around Downing Street famously shouting, "Stop, don't shoot!" when mm. the british police weren't armed you know so it's very odd that they've taken the the media the angry medium language of the American
0: left, and it's become a sort of British thing it's become the guardian but it's not in a way it's not that odd when you think about it because these people, all of us, in fact, are no longer truly inhabiting Britain and America, we're inhabiting a digital sphere in which all of the same memes and language and ideas are being traded. That digital sphere is very much dominated by America, both because they built the internet and because it's such a potent cultural force. So we all follow American accounts. We all are influenced by American thinkers and writers. And so you know on the digital level on the virtual level uh, it makes sense yeah on the real visceral level it makes less sense one of the big uh,
1: right wing talking points is big tech the tyranny of of big tech and so on how big a problem do you think that is uh, particularly i want to talk about the, the hunter biden story uh, before the
0: election i reviewed the hunter biden memoir recently which i highly recommend to anyone as like i mean riveting mess of a book but it was so glaring in the book that he, you know, he, there was one line about the laptop. I mean, you saw him in interviews afterwards saying, yeah, could have been mine, could have been Putin's. Yeah, could have been, you know, been Russian." <laughs> I know, that's crazy. And, and nobody pushed him on that. And, and Well, some, some interviews did, but no one's ever denied that the material is his because it obviously is, right? Yeah. And it is therefore deeply troubling that the New York Post's stories on this, and their entire Twitter account was suspended for the best part of week, two weeks. I can't remember exactly how long. And there hasn't really been an inquisition about that. Now, there were questions about that laptop. The provenance of it is still a bit murky. How it came in, you know, it was being handled by the likes of Giuliani and Bannon, this material. Clearly, there are some red flags there. Nonetheless, the material itself is real, and the New York Post is very entitled to report it as such. And the fact that they were suspended, I mean, I I just think that's a really, really watershed moment. And it's clear that it's a watershed moment, because I think Twitch and Facebook now feel much more comfortable making those kind of interventions on a regular basis. Sometimes maybe they're warranted, but in that case, they really weren't. And you know, clearly in the bigger picture, we don't have a good way of regulating that. There's, all the power is in their hands. Well, I agree. And I also think the rest of the media were
1: a bit... A lot of the rest of the media were very disappointing in that story because rather than sticking up for the freedom of the press, a, a number of publications felt they had to do stories saying how sinister this story was, the, the Giuliani, the Bannon stuff, the kind of, you know... The, they were attacking the story and the New York Post rather than anyone asking the fundamental question of is it true... Which, as you say, it clearly mm. was, because it clearly is under Biden's laptop. So, I mean, I think it was quite a scary, and terrifying thing for America.
0: Well, it goes back to that point about people genuinely feeling, and maybe they have a right to, that, that they were in an existential crisis. Yeah. And I think they felt, a lot of people feel very vindicated by January 6th, because they feel like it proves that they were in an existential crisis. Yeah. And that with the stakes being that high, actually... Okay. yes, it might be true that Hunter Biden was, you know, smoking crack and doing whatever with prostitutes and and being a general asshole. But we sort of knew that. And did they need to report it, given its provenance, when you had Donald Trump trying to sort of bring down the republic around his ears? I mean, that was the feeling. And as I said, I think January 6th has in some ways given license to people to say, well, hang on, you know, that was right. It, the, the, the danger was real. It was present. But well, I, I mean, the, the story, as far as the New York Post was concerned, was obviously
1: the, the crack smoking is titillating and interesting. But the story was the, the 10% for the big guy uh, mm. email that suggested that there could have been some sort of agreement whereby Biden, as vice president, would get cut in on a deal with a Chinese government front group.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's with the 10% for the big guy. It's hard to know exactly what else that, might have meant. Yeah, and certainly that Tony Bobolinsky character who, who was interviewed on Tucker Carlson, you know, no one's ever really refuted what he said. It's just sort of assumed that because he was on Tucker Carlson, you can just write it off as, as a hit job. Yes. And maybe it was, but I I know, like, as you said, people don't really... The the, the mainstream media is not running with Hunter Biden, let's put it that way. I mean, the the book... I don't know. I mean, it's just. i so, I read the book the too. I agree with you. It's absolutely extraordinary. Yeah,
1: but it is. It's sort of. It's a sort of myth in a way, isn't it? It's. It's the. It's the story he wants to tell.
0: Yeah, but the fact that he felt confident enough to publish that. I mean, obviously, he needed the money, but. Yeah. You know, the fact that he felt he could write about being chased by the four horsemen of the crackocalypse <laughs> around Arizona when there are all these unanswered questions about his business dealings. I, I suppose it tells its own story about about the American media in a way.
1: I suppose what what it is we're talking about really is that we're in this era of post-truth and people usually mean that when you hear it in the American media to attack Fox News or the Trump administration. But it it applies to, to all sides in the American media.
0: Yeah, and I think, again, it comes back to this theme of, well, if, if they're no hold barred, no truth, w- whatever it takes to win, then kind of we have to be too. It's a bit of a race to the bottom. I think it's pretty clear that if you look at the, the history of, of conservative media and, and the Trump movement, it's pretty clear that to me, at least, that a lot of the early moves <laughs> were made by Trump. But but he did just he has this horrible habit of making people echo him or mimic him or or behave like him. And that seemed to be the case a lot. And so I think there was a sense of why he's lying and getting away with it. So I'm going to do so, too. And that's where you get stuff like the Lincoln Project and all that rubbish well
1: well, yeah well tell us a little bit about the lincoln project for listeners who might not know what what that is well the
0: lincoln project was a a group of kind of ex-republican consultants some of them quite well known and prominent who got together during the trump era and basically started making adverts attacking trump that were sort of scabrous and sometimes vaguely funny but very uh you know they were real wind-up merchants but the Lincoln Project imploded because these guys were just well one of them John Weaver would turn out to have been acting very inappropriately with young men offering them favors and, and whatnot um, but generally speaking the whole thing was just a bit of a scam really um and was exposed as such but only after Trump was out of office
1: yes and uh yeah nobody asked any questions until until Trump had got out of office Josh, I think we'll leave it there, Um, but thank you very much for joining us, and welcome back to Britain, and I do hope you'll continue writing about America because you write so brilliantly about it. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, and if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review.